It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The year was 1969, and the United States was about to answer the challenge laid down by President Kennedy in September of 1962. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. In this week's episode of Everything Under the Sun, we take a small step back to July 20th, 1969, and revisit Apollo 11's historic trip to the moon. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Rocket Tranquility, we copy on the ground. You got a bunch of guys off the Welcome to this week's AccuWeather podcast, Everything Under the Sun. I'm your host, Regina Miller, along with my producer, Andy Robb, and AccuWeather Director of Audio Services, Ken Prell. And this week is all about the moon landing, guys. We're going to be talking about the timeline of events, the technology that it took not only to launch humans into space, but also to guarantee their survival in such a hostile environment. Well, you guys weren't alive at the time. No, not <laughs> at the time. Not at the time. No. Right. You know, looking back at it, I was like, well, I, I remember it. It must have been about seven because it must have been when they did the five-year anniversary big thing, you know. TV like, special around, yeah. around and I had a black and white television, you know, with the rabbit ears, and it was, like, kind of all snowy, but I remember watching that. Walk over and smack it. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you would have to go adjust the rabbit ears. Oh, the ears. old rabbit ears, yeah. Yeah, you would put aluminum foil on them. It was crazy. That's what we used to do back then. What do you remember about the moon landing? I mean, we learned a lot this week in researching it. I've always um, had a special affinity towards the moon landing. Um, my parents specifically always drove home about how important the date of the moon landing is because July 20th is also my birthday. Oh, are so you it's So that day has always been special to me because of how important that was for that time. My parents, you know, when I was really little said, you know, your birthday shares the date. Oh, Neil Armstrong so and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins landed on the moon. We'll have to bring him like moon cakes or, or moon pies. Like that's a good birthday thing for, for, for Andy. For Andy, because his birthday. Oh, oh your yeah. birthday? Yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting. July 20th? Oh, just, I didn't, I didn't realize He wasn't that. even paying attention to the conversation. That's how much No, actually, what out. I was doing, I was looking at my phone here. Look, earlier this year, I was down in D.C. I went to the Smithsonian right. and Space Museum. Right. And right there is me touching a piece of the moon. Were there no uh, lights on in this room? I, that's what I'm saying. It's like a dark, it it's like a dark right picture there, with a circle. It says right there, touch a piece of the moon. Okay. I, I don't it see it. It is very dark right there. And and when <laughs> you do take a dark. picture of it, you get these kind of weird lines and stuff like that. It's like a black and white round circle 
with your finger in the middle of it. So we can't tell what that I is. I was touching the moon. And look, and there's uh, some other pictures that I have. This is great for a podcast that I'm talking about yeah. pictures I have you, on my yeah, phone. Yeah, so can, can have you a, ever worked in radio? <laughs> yeah. Here's a picture it's of not the, a visual medium here. Of the lunar module. So the spacesuits, yes. uh, when you were down there, the spacesuits to me were an amazing thing that I found out about when we were researching this podcast. They were almost like a spacecraft in itself. Right. Well, the funny thing was when they started designing them, it was kind of like the knight in shining armor, like really bulky. Mm -hmm. And so when people were moving, it looked like, like they couldn't even hardly move. So what you may not know is that the first company that got the bid to do the spacesuits was the same company that did women's brassieres and girdles. Really? So it was Playtex, which was formerly known as the International Latex Corporation. They won the bid. There were women seamstresses who had been doing bras and girdles for years Mm -hmm. who ended up making the suits that kept astronauts safe in space. That's, I, wow. I never that? knew that. Yeah. That's really fascinating, yeah. actually. Yeah. And there, wow. was, there was 21 layers to the spacesuit. Tw- 21 layers? They had 21 layers. So when you think about it, during the day, it's 100 degrees Celsius, which is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And then at night, it gets as cold as minus 173 degrees Celsius or minus 279 degrees Fahrenheit. The really first test for all this stuff was actually when it was happening. There was right. no way to really test Not it Not to truly, to test, truly it. test it. They did do testing in Flagstaff, mm-hmm. Arizona, just because like... Which is the, just a little bit different than so the surface it's slightly, of the moon. It's slightly... <laughs> you want to hear how different... So here's an example. The Mojave Desert, mm-hmm. uh, day-to-night range is about 20 to 30 degrees on average. So you compare that to 212 degrees during the day and minus 279 degrees at night. So yeah, pretty good swing but, on the moon that you don't have on the Earth. Into account all the radiation that right. they would, the astronauts would be running into right. being on the moon. So just an amazing thing. So what they had to do, because you figure heat is transferred uh, a couple of the ways, is solar radiation. So they had it set up so that these suits were 90% reflective of, mm-hmm. of solar radiation. And then also conduction, heat conduction from a surface. So they also had to have the various materials, knees, waist, elbows, they had foam rubber cushion. But they also had these tubes of water, the plastic tubes of water that were in some of the surface next to the body so that it would help with cooling. Okay. And then they had their own like life support system basically so that they could be... uh, like so that they could leave the module yep. and just walk around the moon. I mean, it's fascinating. Just you know, right. again, as we've been putting this show together, just learning all kinds of this different stuff that actually you it's know, crazy. It's amazing we got there. It's amazing we <laughs> yeah. got there. Yeah. And then the other thing too is the w- women that did it. I saw a recent interview with them on uh, CBS Sunday Morning where they were panicked. They're like, "Please let our stitches hold." <laughs> yeah, you know. Like, oh sure. Because you're responsible for the safety of the astronauts in space. Yeah. You know, and I think it's ironic because the very fact that they were in a vacuum in space and those extreme conditions. And they said that some of the things that were breaking down the suits was the fact that the humidity, temperature, light on Earth. So our our climate or our weather on Mm -hmm. Earth was actually causing them to kind of break down. So the fact that there is a climate here has an adverse effect on. Yeah, they were designed for being on the moon. Right. They were designed for those extremes in the vacuums. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> you would think that, like, you make a spacesuit on Earth, 
you know, it's it, you're not going to encounter any problems, but right. more problems on Earth than actually in <laughs> space. That's and ridiculous. then to come up with what they had to do, because like when I was looking through, like the research of temperatures on the moon and all the, and all the thermodynamic equations and like so much beyond my pay grade of what all <laughs> they were doing to come up with these suits at NASA. The amount of research and development is just probably staggering among you know the the teams that they had assembled to to come up with these things. Right. What were your feelings upon like researching the astronauts you know one thing that always jumps out to me is the human element mm-hmm. uh, of these kind of stories and uh buzz aldrin yeah the second man that just fascinated me as i was going through looking up uh, different clips on youtube and there's um i think we do have a little bit of sound of buzz talking about from a 1973 interview his disappointment of being the second man on the moon. how disappointed were you that you were the second man on the moon and not the first. I like to be associated with the fact that I was on the first lunar landing mission instead of being the second man to walk on the moon. But it doesn't bother me particularly. Uh, it irritates the heck out of my father, though. Uh, he's always looking out for the best things for his offspring. Can you remember, if you were disappointed when the decision was taken, what, a month or so before you actually went to the moon? Oh, yeah, certainly disappointed. But I think that... Uh, My life would have been a little more hectic had I been the first. Who knows, I might have even decided to become a college professor the way Neil did. And you can really hear it in his voice there. I mean, he tries to pass it off as, you know, he was more disappointed for his father because his father wanted him to be the first one. And he's like, I'm I'm kind of disappointed, yeah. Yeah. And I think in the years, you know, since the the moon landing, you know, Buzz has always been the one who's really been out in front. You know, he's Mm -hmm. been, where Neil Armstrong was quiet, reserved. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and there was some speculation that they were kind of chosen for those reasons. Buzz Aldrin's kind of like, he didn't mind the limelight, you know, a little bit, little bit of a hot dog kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was kind of ironic because um, in interviews and some of the different stories that I heard about this, I had heard that um, they kind of wanted Neil Armstrong to do it because for the very reason he would be the first to land on the moon because he was so down to earth. Yeah. Like, how ironic is that? Because his first man to walk on the moon <laughs> because is really the most down to earth. So man. down to earth. But I thought it, it was kind of fascinating that they chose him. He had been an aeronautical engineer and a young pilot, and he was shot down in the Korean War. Did you know that? No. I did. I did not know. You knew that, Andy? Yeah. Yeah, so he was shot down in the Korean War, and he ejected, and he landed safely. He was, like, so calm and, Mm -hmm. like, cool and collected. And and it really brought him to the center of attention for how he handled that and, like, how it was, like, a crazy situation. He had that kind of, you know, early spaceman demeanor to him, you know, with so many different factors, so many things that are even, you know, out of your control. He managed to keep a level head. When the eagle was descending onto the moon, uh, and I I believe we do have audio of this as well uh, from a 2011 interview with Neil Armstrong. So we continued on to the toward the landing site, but uh, then the computer showed us where it intended to land, and it uh, it was a very bad location. It was on the on the side of a uh, large crater, about uh, oh, I I suppose uh, 100 and. 100 or 150 meters uh, in diameter and with very steep slopes covered with very large boulders and not a good place to land at all. So I I took over manually and flew it like a helicopter uh, out to the west uh, direction. We got into a smoother area with not so many rocks, found a 
found a, a level area and uh, was able to get it down there safely before we ran out of fuel. Yeah, within what, 20 seconds or Something 40 like seconds? 20 seconds of fuel left. Uh, I would be freaking out. I, so I'm crazy. like that when we're going on a family vacation. I'm like, <laughs> so, why are yeah, you stopping? Are we going to get to the next gas station? No, here you're on the moon. Right. You know. <laughs> well, you know what he said about that, too, is he had said that he kind of calculated it, that even if they ran out of fuel, he was close enough, and the surface was powdery enough that he knew that, well, we'll still be okay, yeah. even if we ran out of fuel right before the landing. Well, instead of us talking about it, we may as well bring in our historian here at AccuWeather, uh, meteorologist Evan Myers. He was one of the estimated 600 million people around the world who watched it that day, July 20th, 1969. What do you remember about it, Evan? So uh, I remember that day pretty vividly. I was 19 years old. My soon-to-be wife, mm -hmm. about a year and a half later, uh, she and I and another friend of ours, three of us got in a car and went to northern New Jersey and visited a friend of my wife's who she went to school with. She went to, at the time, went to American University. I believe initially that uh, we were going to watch the moon landing at her friend's house sometime in the late afternoon or early evening. Yeah, well, the Eagle had landed around around 417, 418. So, so I yeah. think we were there at the time. So we were going to stay and watch Neil Armstrong come yeah. out of the lunar module and, and walk on the moon. Uh, but somehow, I don't remember the exact details, but somehow it got delayed. So we were there for a number of hours. And uh, my wife and myself at the time lived in, in Philadelphia at our respective parents' house. And my wife and I and our friend drove back to my wife's parents' house uh, and watched Neil Armstrong the small set, step. <laughs> set foot on the moon. And I remember us discussing, what did he say? What exactly did he say? I know there's been a debate over time what he said, although he said what he said, and I guess I would trust what Neil Armstrong <laughs> to know what he said. And actually, he says he came up with that right on the spot. Here is Neil Armstrong back in 2011 in an interview he did with the uh, Certified Practicing Accountants Organization of Australia. Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't think about that until after landing. I had no confidence in our ability to get down, down safely yet, mm -hmm. so... Uh, uh, wasn't I didn't bother thinking about about that until after landing. And Do you believe that? <laughs> yeah, why not? I, yeah, I mean, why not? Sometimes, sometimes people come out with uh, profound statements, even if they hadn't thought about it. But the pressure I, of the I don't moment know. You know what? It, it, it yeah, doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. <laughs> he said it. He said it. Do you remember how you felt when you first saw like the the first steps coming out with Armstrong? What was going through your mind? How tired I was from driving all from from being, <laughs> from, from being uh, driving <laughs> to New Jersey and back. It, it, in some ways, it was almost anticlimactic because we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I mean, you know, when it you was look, hours after they had when, landed. Yes. When you look back on it, you know, you think, wow, that was incredible. When you're living the moment oftentimes, and this is unfortunate, mm -hmm. uh, p people have this kind of experience. But uh, when you're in the moment, sometimes you, you lose, you know, the special nature of what's going on. That's why I always say to people, live in the moment. Think about what's happening. Be mindful of what you're witnessing uh, because oftentimes the mundane takes over. Let's go back to seven years before that. Um, oh. Kennedy, Kennedy's speech <laughs> on uh, September uh, 12, 1962. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution, the first waves of modern invention, 
and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. How realistic uh, was it to believe in 62 that by the end of the decade, by 1969, that we would actually land a man on the moon? It was a different age. It was before the age of cynicism, I think. <laughs> Uh, and I remember that, uh, in, I remember Kennedy Smith, so 62, I was 12, I remember that speech, and I remember him saying something like, uh, the, you know, we do these things not because they are easy, mm -hmm. but because they are hard. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And that's the kind of country we are. And uh, we may have lost our way to a certain extent uh, about how we approach things uh, in this age of cynicism. But I think that when he made that comment, people believed. People believed that we could do that mm -hmm. because anything was possible. And uh, as Americans, and just people, not just Americans, but people looking at uh, the cutting edge of things, I, I think people really believed in it. You know, it's interesting. When President Kennedy was touring Cape Canaveral at the mm -hmm. time, uh, before the name was changed, and then changed back, of course. It's Kennedy Space Center, but it's Cape Canaveral. But when he was touring there sometime after that speech, uh, he was saying hello to different folks working there, and he came across a maintenance person. And he said, what do you do here? He said, I work on the team that's going to help send a man to the moon. And I think the, there, was, there was a national purpose at the time that, unfortunately, I, don't, I think we've lost. You know, Evan, you mentioned uh, Cape Canaveral there, and I was just wondering, it, I was always curious, was there any reason why Cape Canaveral was chosen? Did the weather have anything to do with that? Well, it was chosen for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first of all, it was in a remote area. From a flight trajectory standpoint, the kind of flight trajectories that uh, launching the astronauts in orbit around the Earth. Remember, that's what we did initially, orbits around the Earth. But it was a good place to do the kind of trajectory they were looking at from that, that launch point. As I said, it was remote. It was somewhat warmer. And, of course, that would come into play later uh, with the Challenger yes. explosion. We know, and, and as AccuWeather talked about at the time of the day of the explosion, that was the first and subsequently only launch that took place when temperatures were below freezing, which is a highly unusual in that, yeah. that climate in Florida. Well, it was late uh, January. It, it was, but it's still highly unusual, yeah. uh, and that's obviously caused a problem with the O-rings with uh, the Challenger with the booster rocket because of the, the cold temperatures. But there were no cold temperatures back in July, in July <laughs> and uh, l unlikely to be any almost at any time of the year. Uh, in that area. So that was one of the things. It's really interesting because Jules Verne, the famous uh, science fiction writer from mm -hmm. the 1800s, wrote a book about launching people to the moon. Mm -hmm. And where did he pick for the site of the launch? Really? Cape, Cape Canaveral? Cape Canaveral, yep. Wow. <laughs> it's, uh, sometimes, th you know, it's like holding the old uh, flip phone. Uh, you know, and, and those flip phones before, you know, the, the smartphones we have now, the old, what did they resemble? The communicators that were used on, on Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yep. <laughs> so which came first? It's hard to tell. So sometimes uh, fact is so, stranger yeah, than fiction. It's, it's inspired, you know. Maybe. It, it is. I'm not sure who inspired <laughs> who. Or, that's right. Ideally, um, what kind of weather is necessary for a, a good launch? Well, I think, uh, and I'm not an expert on rocket propulsion, mm -hmm. 
certainly for airplane lift, which is totally a different situation, it can get too hot for good lift. Uh, back in the summer of 1980, for example, when uh, temperatures routinely across places like Oklahoma and Kansas were over 110 degrees, uh, they had to reduce the weight of the planes, less baggage, because the air was thinner. The hotter the air is, the, th the thinner it is. They didn't get the kind of lift they needed, and they w sometimes weren't able to take off. But rocket propulsion is a whole different mm -hmm. situation. So temperature really isn't that much of an issue unless it's below freezing, and I would suspect that over time they'll solve that issue as well. I think, though, that uh, you want to have uh, non-adverse weather, meaning you don't want to launch a thunderstorm or a hurricane or anything like mm -hmm. that because, in fact, especially at the beginning of the launch with uh, propulsion just starting in the first uh, several thousand feet, you don't want to be buffeted by strong adverse winds or crosswinds. So uh, the clearer it is, the calmer it is, I'm sure, is the better uh, for everybody. So let's go back to the actual launch date, July 16th, 1969. What was the weather like for that day? I think it was fairly uh, benign. Uh, there weren't, uh, there was no, no issues, no storms nearby at the time and so on. And I, I know that uh, at various times they delayed launches because of thunderstorm activity and so on being close by, delayed it later in the day or the next day or so on. So it was obviously favorable for the launch and everything unlike Apollo 13, yeah. <laughs> which was a technical difficulty, but Apollo 11 uh, went off pretty much without a hitch. One of the things I like to do is kind of look back and ask a what if kind of a question. Uh, a lot of people, you know, kind of, I think, believe that the space race either started in the 50s or possibly with Kennedy's speech in 62, which really wasn't the case. It actually started back in the, really the 30s in World War II. And it's exactly, exactly. So it's interesting because uh, rocket propulsion mm -hmm. was invented hundreds and hundreds of years before by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese used rockets uh, for decoration and also from a military standpoint. Mm -hmm. Remember, gunpowder was invented in China, mm -hmm. and artillery, guns were used in the Far East way before they ever made it to Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, the Europe was living in the Dark Ages in a lot of different ways, and that way as well. So rockets were used then, but the Germans really worked on rocket propulsion uh, more than uh, just about anyone. In the United States, Dr. Goddard was the... Uh, person that really spearheaded that, but the rockets that he did were really uh, on a shoestring and were more crude. The rockets the Germans developed, V-1 and V-2 rockets, in fact, near the end of the war, were sent over to, uh, when the Germans ran out of airplanes, they sent rockets to, to England, devastating parts of London mm -hmm. and so on. After This is way after the Blitz. The Blitz yep. occurred in 1940. This was, this was way after that. This is near the end of the war. They were just trying to throw the kitchen sink at everybody else. Just doing else. anything to and they, it. And yep. it was in, they were in, indiscriminate. And so what happened at the end of the war was that uh, there was a race between the Soviets and the Allies mm -hmm. to try to gather up yep. these German rocket scientists. And the chief German rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, mm -hmm. was uh, captured by the Allies and brought to the United States and uh, was the father of the U.S. space program, even though some people said he was a war criminal, for spearheading the German rocket program uh, that devastated parts of yep. England. And he ends up being the lead rocket engineer during he the was. 50s He was. He was the father of the space yep. program uh, during the 50s and 60s. Uh, he was the main guy uh, in the U.S. 
that helped develop the rocket technology that we use. Now, the space program or the space race was started. The Soviets had a, had a head start. They launched the monkey into space. They, they launched Sputnik, the first satellite. Yes. was the Russians. The Russians all launched the first, a, the yeah. first animal yeah. in space was a dog. Mm -hmm. And then the first human in space was Russian. And the dog was a Russian dog. Mm -hmm. So the Russians were ahead of us in every way, shape, or form. And even today, with no uh, space shuttle program yeah. any longer, although talking about reviving and mm -hmm. so on, we still send astronauts into space from the Russian, Russian spa space. from the Russian Space yep. Center. Yep. Uh, the, so we send them into space with Russians. It's the Russians more than any other country in the world now that are doing that. And of course, the Chinese are getting involved in in wanting to do that, and some other the, the Saudis, other countries as well. Uh, so it may not be much longer before we have lots of folks back in space from all different countries. And it may not be too much longer before we have other people walking on the face of the moon. Yeah. Well, that brings me to my what if, though. Von Braun, if he's captured by the Soviets, do we get to the moon? So, th so that's, the, <laughs> that's the question that goes along with everything in history. Yes. You know, the one person, the one man, the one woman uh, impact on history. Or so, was our resolve better? So as individuals, yeah. I, th yeah. now you really asked a deep philosophical <laughs> question. Uh, you know, uh, can you go back and change the, the history? But I think that there's a couple. Uh, we as individuals take a great part in, in painting the picture of how history uh, winds up to be. At the same time, uh, and, and certainly there are individual leaders, individual scientists, the Einstein, for example, people, Aristotle, people that uh, really have an unbelievable impact on history. But I'll turn your what-if question around. If not that person, it probably would have been another somebody person. Somebody else. Yep. It would have been somebody else. Well, I think what you said earlier on, the, the patriotism after Kennedy's speech, and we were going to get there, there was no stopping us at that point. There was a, there was a resolve. There was a resolve from our scientists, from our science program. There was an infrastructure in the country that aided this kind of development. The National Science Foundation gave tremendous amounts of scholarships out in all the sciences, including meteorology. There was a whole infrastructure in our country that promoted science. We believed in science at mm -hmm. that time. I'm not sure some folks believe in science today. So as we go to July 20th, 1969, the day of the moon landing. Evan, I have to ask you, was that one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible thing you saw of the 1960s? <laughs> well, no, it wasn't. Really? Uh, as, a as a child of the 60s, well, I was a, grew up as a little kid in the 50s, but in the 60s, you know, was the moon landing, uh, you know, you might look back and say, that was the most incredible, unbelievable thing that ever happened uh, at that time. But there were so many incredible, unbelievable things happening in the United States and across the world with, you know, counterculture, uh, you know, civil rights, women's rights, the war in Vietnam, riots, all kinds of things going on. It just seemed to fit in to everything else that was happening. Uh, just another wild and crazy thing mm -hmm. that was occurring in the 1960s. So, Evan, the last time we sent someone on the moon was 1972. So what do you think? Should we go back to the moon or should we set our sights on something else like Mars? Well, I know that there is uh, the, the Mars is on the horizon. But throughout all human history, the way that we've advanced as a people, as a civilization, as a culture, is to always look beyond the horizon. It's always been to look to something that seems almost unreachable, but yet we're able to reach it. 
And there's been so many byproducts from looking ahead to uh, those types of almost seemingly unreachable goals that have advanced uh, human history, that advanced humankind, that I think that part of our DNA from the time that uh, the cave dwellers looked at the moon and, and wondered what it was to finally reaching there. And, and what are we going to look for next and how are we going to get there? Fantastic. I always love having Evan on. <laughs> always get to get into these conversations. And you can check out Evan every day on uh, Weather Insider Podcast along with AccuWeather's Bernie Reno. Um, subscribe today, Apple Podcast, the Google Podcast app, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Evan, thanks so much. Absolutely. So it happened. I feel pretty confident that it happened. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I thought it was interesting because after the Apollo landing that the Flat Earth Society of Europe, I think at the time, said we might have to reconsider things. But, Ken, you're like the conspiracy guy. I right, do. Andy? I, I right? do love my yeah. conspiracy he loves it. theories. He has, he has something about the Detroit I, I, I airport. Really do, I really um, don't want to encourage this. Or no, it's the Denver yes. airport. The Denver <laughs> airport. There oh, is a, no, you don't oh, want to know We can do a whole another show about that. So you and Seth Curry, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, okay. this is what oh, I Oh, you're going to try to justify this No, now? no, no. Yeah. I actually believe we went to the moon. I'm all on oh, board good. on this. Thank I'm not goodness. a conspiracy okay. theorist on this one. But, I mean, polls are done on this. About 5% of people out there actually believe that we didn't go to the moon. And it was all, really, this was all, all this kind of controversy was kicked up last December uh, with Steph Curry, NBA superstar. He was on the Winging It podcast, and uh, he said he didn't believe that Americans landed on the moon. Here's a little bit of that. We ever been to the moon? Nope. Nope. They gonna come get us. I don't think so. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to start conspiracy. Maybe on the moon. You don't think so? Mm-mm. Now, Kerry later admitted that you know he was just joking around. Do you think it, he was? Do you think you he know, was joking, or do you think he was trying to save face? We do a podcast all the time. You know some of the stuff that we say. You know sometimes yeah. we just oh you're you know, joking. You're yeah. joking around. You know you're around your friends and you just start saying stuff. So I think really yeah. he was probably just joking around, but it did cause up quite a controversy you know right and well because there there's the people that don't believe it well, and, they're and like, there's actually hey, astronauts who were who walked on the moon now we're not just talking about apollo 11 here i mean we've been in the moon several times so there's plenty of astronauts who have actually walked on the moon and they've they invited steph curry you know to <laughs> like, yeah, down to houston and take a you know tour the facilities and stuff like that but it's uh, hard for us as a nation to come yeah. together on anything let alone a huge conspiracy that involves thousands of people so wait a minute all you have to say is you don't believe we actually landed on the moon and you get a free trip to nasa to check it out well i'm all for it well if you're one of the best basketball you're players famous. in the world I am. absolutely i am Andy, like they're gonna send you can't even make a <laughs> shot into gonna... a trash can here in the studio so i doubt Look, all i'm saying is i want to go to nasa okay <laughs> maybe after this takes. episode we'll get invited yeah so maybe after this episode if that's what it takes but um you know i thought it was interesting that one of the pilots charles duke of apollo 16 the lunar module there he said, we've been to the moon nine times. I mean, why did we fake it nine times <laughs> if we faked it? It's a very good point. And, you know, after the Steph Curry controversy came around, Forbes magazine did an article. And since this is an AccuWeather podcast, we should probably talk a little bit about the weather. Mm-hmm. The lack of weather on the moon actually proves we've been to the moon. Yes, I know. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, because they're, from this article, they say, here on Earth, footprints generally don't last very long. You know, whenever you leave tracks, you fully expect that whether it takes minutes, days, or weeks, eventually a natural phenomenon 
in the world will right. actually cover them up. So mm -hmm. there's no weather. There's you know there's no wind. Right. <laughs> there's there's no nothing rain. in space that's going to wash away a footprint. No. You're not going to ever have that happen. And there's been spacecrafts that have gone by and have mapped out the moon, mm -hmm. and you can still see the footprints. <laughs> so we've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it proves that we've been there, and like you said, several times we've been there. So mm -hmm. uh, it's just amazing. The lack of weather on the moon is what actually proves that we've is been there. Is what actually proves it. And you know, Alan Bean, he was from Apollo 12. He said, since that time, I have not complained about the weather one <laughs> single time. He was like, I'm glad there's weather. And he said, we're lucky to be here. Final thoughts, you guys. It, the whole thing is fascinating. And there are so many different yeah. uh, facets of the moon landing really, that I didn't yeah. even know about. Final thought from me is that, of course, you know, there's a lot of talk about going back to the moon. And, you know, what did we just talk about was the footprint still there on the moon. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that protects that. So if Japan goes to the moon right. or China goes to the moon, they can land in the same spot and erase Neil Armstrong's footprints. Well, then are we going to have to go back just because we can keep putting foot well, footprints? Well, that's why, you know, <laughs> and, and there's a great article in the New York Times this weekend. We're talking about this. And should there be something that protects that? And how do you do that? Oh, you my know, gosh. You mean, like, together? go up and set, like, some kind of dome? Well, I mean, I don't it? know if we have to go up and, and protect it that way. But oh. is there an agreement here oh, between oh, the oh, countries okay. of Oh, that's kind of tough. You we know, can't agree like, on exactly. things pertaining to the Earth but right the, now. But the thought that, you know, we can send Andy, <laughs> Andy? up there and he can just ruin the footprint. Of Neil Armstrong, <laughs> you know, is, is you know, I'm not going to ruin that. Hey, you're the moon baby, you moon know. Baby. So. <laughs> um, but you know, the one thing that I thought was really interesting about it is I, I read a lot of quotes from different astronauts who have been there, and perspective really helps you to appreciate your world because mm -hmm. what I noticed about it was not so much the moon. That sounds terrible, but I wasn't all that interested in the moon. I was interested in the earth. It was amazing to see weather and how beautiful the earth was and how bright it was and to think we just need to come together and get along. I mean, we're all one human race. With that. When you see it, I know it's crazy. That's what I mean. It really must give you such perspective when you see it from out there. My final thought in terms of how important this is, I really think that, you know, for the last several decades and even now, I think that we should be doing more of this. We should be exploring space more. We should be doing more with the moon. We should be. Would you be would you rather us go to the moon again or another focus, planet? Focus on Mars. Why can't you focus on both? Right. Well, it's very expensive. Well, it yeah. is pretty expensive. So you got to pick and choose, Andy. You can't have it all. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I don't have an answer for that. But what I do think is that, you know, we should be making more conscious efforts to explore more than that's outside of the world that we know. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it was funny because we did the space race and then 1972 was the last guy that we sent. And, and then we're like, OK, we won. Uh, I'm going well, to get the past drinks. couple of weeks. There's been a number of great documentaries on like the Science Channel, Nat Geo, even the second. The one that happened in November of 69, our second trip to the moon, there was very little fanfare around that whatsoever. It was like, oh, we're, we're going back there again. You know, why don't we focus on the problems that we have here on Earth? Maybe instead of spending all this money to go to the moon and just a that, because few there was months, a bunch of unemployment at yes, that time, exactly. the economy was kind of tanking. And then all of a sudden people like turned. So it was just amazing that do this great so short sighted feat. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, you know, just months later, it was like, all right, well, forget about that. <laughs> I know. It's like, OK, we beat the Russians. Yay. Yeah. Time to go take a rest for so. a while until we decide to race again. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think it's all about perspective. And mm -hmm. one of the quotes 
quotes that really impacted me was from space, one of the astronauts in the Nat Geo documentary, Apollo Mission to the Moon. Take a listen to this. Through all time, the moon has endured out there, pale and distant, determining the tides, tugging of the heart, a symbol, a beacon, a goal. As we departed from the Earth on our way to the moon, I was particularly impressed by the relative insignificance of this planet that we live on. We all tend to uh, think that it is a mammoth place, that it goes on forever. And here is this one very small, colorful body against this black backdrop that goes on forever. I think that it, it impressed me with the thought that man should strive very hard to learn to live with his brothers and learn how to take care of this very small and fragile planet that he lives on. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.